Hi everyone and welcome to the new edition of My Inspiration, a podcast series from HMV. In this series we give musicians, actors, filmmakers and writers the chance to take a welcome break from talking about themselves and instead talk about their greatest inspiration, someone who's been a big influence on their lives and formed their own work. I'm your host Tom Goodwin and I'm delighted to welcome you to our latest episode. I'm joined today by our producer James Forian and today's guest. After leaving drama school, our guest today first appeared on screen in EastEnders, but scored his real breakthrough in the following years after working with Mike Lee on acclaimed dramas All or Nothing and Vera Drake. In the years since, he has established himself on the small screen with key roles in Ashes to Ashes, Red Riding, Line of Duty, Mrs. Biggs and Temple. And on the big screen with roles in Atonement, 1917, Star Wars spin-off Rogue One and Fisherman's Friends to name but a few. His latest offering is Code 404 in which he stars alongside Stephen Graham. In this new comedy he plays Detective Inspector John Major who was gunned down in the line of duty. When it's discovered he can be brought back to life with robotic technology, all his colleagues are ecstatic. But when it turns out the technology might not be up to scratch, things begin to deteriorate. We're delighted to welcome him to the podcast today as he gears up for an extremely busy 2020, so please welcome Daniel Mays. How are you, Tom? Nice to see you. Thanks and for you? having me on. How's everything going? All right, busy boy. Good. I'm. I'm just. I'm exhausted already. Just listening to that <laughs> intro. Uh, yeah, last year was particularly busy, and so yeah, we're gearing up for, into 2020, and, and with the release of all this work, and um, yeah, I'm excited to uh, get it out to the public. Really, it's always like the final leap over the hurdle, really, isn't it? So. Um, but Code 404 was a great project to be part of, and it's coming out, I think, the end of April, alongside, as you mentioned, the brilliant Stephen Graham and Anna Maxwell-Martin. And it's, I guess it's a sort of out-and-out comedy in many respects. So it was, it was somewhat of a departure for me and Stephen, because, you know, I guess you associate ourselves with, um, you know, heavy drama. He'd come off the back of The Virtues and Line of Duty, and I'd probably been doing some equally heavy stuff. So this script came along, they approached me about it, I read it, I thought it was absolutely fantastic, uh, writing from Daniel Peake, and um, I said to the producers when I sat down with them, who are you thinking about for the other partner? And they, and they said, well, it's early days, and I said, well, what about Stephen Graham? Because we'd worked together years ago on a show called Top Buzzer for MTV, and um, we've always stayed in contact, became firm friends and looking for a, another thing to do. So it just sort of felt like the natural sort of outlet for us really um, so yeah it's a brilliant comedy it's got a conspiracy theory running through it there's a love triangle with Anna Maxwell Martin's character because he's been having an affair she plays my wife in it so um, it's hilarious yeah he comes back and the wiring's all wrong and he's yeah. like kicking down the wrong doors and arresting the wrong people um, so it's great yeah we had a lot of fun doing it how was it kind of working with Stephen again because obviously everyone's he sort of built as this you know small, stocky, incredibly yeah. like, intense part of energy, but he must have a fun side as well. But he is a ball of energy. He's, I, he, he kind of is a force of nature, really, and you're really aware of him on the set, you know. And, but he is completely professional. He, you know, he's so great, but along with that, he has an amazing work ethic, you know. He's always constantly wants to run the lines in the car on the way to the set. But we really did have a lot of fun with it. Um, we played around with it a lot. I think, you know, the outtakes reel is, is probably longer than the episode <laughs> itself. Um, but it's great. And I mean, it's a classic 
straight man, funny man. You know, he's the straight man, and I'm just, you know, with the wiring being all wrong, I'm all over the place. And um, so it's a great dynamic. It's a sort of classic comedic dynamic in that respect. And then when you throw Anna's character in there, it's um, it's just very funny. But I also f- I sort of find it quite moving as well. There's a lot of great pathos in it as well because. He's like a prototype. He's like the first I've ever tried this technology out on. And if it goes wrong, then the powers that be are just going to switch him off and he'll be no more. So in that respect, the stakes are ridiculously high, you know. And there's a, you know, they've got a great friendship, the two characters, and they're a great police partnership. So, um, but yeah, it was classic sort of laugh out loud uh, every page of the script that I read. They sent it to me, they told me the premise, and I was like, slightly left field that. And then I started reading the script, and my wife was in the room the next door, and I was just absolutely pissing myself laughing. She's, she screamed out, um, so you, you're going to be doing it then, are you? <laughs> that was it. So when you get writing as good as that, it just sort of leaps off the page, and yeah, it was um, a joy to do. And you've also got Dez coming up with, uh, with David Tennant. Yes, that's me now Different going back to my heavy <laughs> stuff. Yeah, Des is a th- new three-part ITV drama uh, about the serial killer, Dennis Nilsson, who in this is played by the magnificent David Tennant. Uh, we've also got Jason Watkins, who plays Brian Masters, who was uh, Nilsson's biographer, who went to visit him in prison and uh, wrote uh, the brilliant book Killing for Company. I don't know if you've read that. I would sort of advise anyone to read that. It's a fantastic read. And I play uh, DCI... Uh, Peter J, nearly forgot my character then, <laughs> who was the uh, real-life policeman who was responsible for convicting Nielsen along with his uh, team of police. So it's, it's brilliant um, insight into that case. I mean, no doubt there'll be some sort of people up in arms saying, why do you want to sort of tell the story? But with this particular piece, it's very much told through the eyes of the policeman and the biographer. And so there's a lot of misconceived ideas and um, facts about that case. You know, lots of people think, you know, he, in total he killed 15 men. And lots of people say, well, they were all gay, and, but they weren't. You know, lots of them were sort of very vulnerable and homeless and vagrants and all that stuff. And um, so it's dark, it's, um, but totally engrossing. It's a compelling read when I read the scripts. And it's quite grim, obviously, as you'd imagine, but I, you know, I'm, I'm really, I mean, I love doing it. And to sit opposite someone as brilliant as David Tennant in that role was, was quite something. Yeah, he's delivered a, a sort of knockout performance. It was quite, um, quite eerie in many respects how sort of ordinary he played it. He kind of didn't play it with any emotion at all, which was, I guess, you know, from an acting point of view, a huge challenge. But it was great, yeah. Um, we're very excited about that coming out. And um, obviously your year started with 1917. Yes. Which has been a tremendous success. Yeah. How's it kind of been enjoying all that, the full awards run and, you know? It was just, uh, just a brilliant thing to be part of. I mean, I only had... Um, I had, like, three, four days in it, and um, it's well, just... Everyone has small roles, except... Yeah, I mean, Mark Strong was in it, and Andrew Scott, and we all had our little bit, so that sort of gimmick that they had in it was just great to be part of that ensemble. And, it, listen, it was just wonderful to be on set with, um, you know, a filmmaker as brilliant as, as Sam Mendes, because I've been such a huge fan of his, you know, back catalogue. Um, 
but it was an amazing thing to experience because of the fact that it was literally just one shot um, or you know long extended takes edited together and so when I got up to Salisbury Plain they the, they literally had built this first world war trench system and there was you know hundreds of extras and so there was a there was a lot of pressure in the sense of not getting your lines wrong and not falling over and all that sort of stuff but um I'd done a play with uh, George Mackay who was obviously one of the lead guys in it we'd done a the caretaker to get to, together at the um the caretaker at the old Vic so I know George really well so he was I mean I just think his performance along with Dean uh, the other actor were just absolutely knockout yeah it looked almost from a technical standpoint when all the footage came out about it was going to be one shot I think yeah. everyone was like is this really going to pull off for the whole thing but it mm. certainly really works was it like to be there on set thinking god this is going to be quite an undertaking to get it together I think it's without doubt for me personally one of the most immersive films I've ever watched and I mean I literally had to start the whole movie it's quite a thrill to have the opening line of the film and, and then I obviously walked the two boys down the trench system into the dugout where Colin Firth is waiting for them so but having to, to act in that trench system I mean there was extras all the way along that you know encased in dugouts and the, the level of detail and set design that went into that was I'm not sure if it won an Oscar for set design it was certainly won like, for technical achievement I can't remember anyway but um, yeah I mean you're working with filmmakers at the absolute top of their game so um, you know they're the things you want to be involved in really um, it was great and, and just the way it's been received I mean that's what's doubly pleasing is that uh, yes it's won huge amount of awards but it's been number one at the box office for ages now so um, when you get that you know on both sides of the coin it's fantastic and obviously last year you had Good Omens which was a big hit with kind of critics and fans alike um, is there, um, is there, there was a brief bit of talk of some more. Have you heard anything kind of about that? Um, I, I, well, obviously I worked with David Tennant, yeah. so I did ask him that question, but yeah. I'm not, I, the, that was such a hit with fans. It's yeah. got a huge, I actually did that um, London Comic Con in last <laughs> summer, which I'd never done before, and they asked me to do it. I think purely because I was in Good Omens. <laughs> so you get that scenario where people queue up to have, uh, their photograph with you which is slightly strange but um, it was just full of good omens people you know like people were they, there was this one particular girl and she said can you pull my ripcord here and I was like what do you mean she said pull this rope and out pop these uh, angel wings <laughs> Uh, which, I mean, the level of sort of imagination and, and thought that goes into some of their outfits was incredible. So I think, listen, I mean, if it's got that huge fan base, um, I think they'd probably be silly not to give it another go in, in some way. Um, you know, Neil Gaiman's such a brilliant writer, so I'm sure he's probably got something up his sleeve. Yeah. Will you talk about... White lines. You're talking about that. I'm going to preempt you. Oh, right. I'll preempt that, that was the next. That was the next. I won't one. have to talk about my inspiration, no, will no, I? Because no. we just go through white yeah, yeah. projects coming out. Yeah. Well, that is on the list. I mean, information about that is a, a little bit more limited than oh, it's right. on, But um, well, would anyone talk about it? Tell us about it. Well, we had the screening. Um, we had a cast and crew screening last week where they showed us the first two eps. And it's, um, in a nutshell, how do, I, how do I describe White Lines? Because it's sort of indescribable. Um, it's brilliant. It's a, it's a murder mystery set in the nightclubs of Ibiza. 
So Laura Haddock, who's our brilliant lead, um, she has a younger brother uh, who mysteriously went missing. He was this superstar DJ in Ibiza. He, along with a group of his friends from Manchester, left 20 years ago to Ibiza. And he's like this sort of, you know, on the cusp of being like a David Getter or something like that. You know, he's sort of lauded all over the island. And then mysteriously, he's just gone, presumed dead. And at the beginning of the story, his body is discovered in a desert in Almeria. And she then goes back to Ibiza. It's, it's found on the land of this, it's called the Caliphate family, or sort of quite like, I guess you could describe them as quite a mafioso family. They control all the nightclubs and drug cartels on the island. And so she's then forced to go back to Ibiza and to discover actually what happened to her brother. And so all the group of friends from Manchester are all there. And you, so you've got two parallel storylines 20 years apart. So there was a load of younger actors playing us 20 years ago. So Kel Spellman is playing me. Um, what was that like? It was a bit weird, you know. <laughs> I said, you better pull it out of the bag, Kel. Don't let me down. He's brilliant. He's obviously been on cold feet and, and all that stuff. And So they assembled these crack shot, brilliant young group of actors who just had a ball on it. So you've got half Spanish, half English, you've got subtitles, you've got parallel storylines, you've got sex, you've got music, you've got drugs. It's, I looked at it the other night and I thought, it's very Tarantino. Do you it's know a 10-parter, I mean? isn't it, as well? It's yeah. a 10-parter, it's on Netflix. Um, you just literally can't take your eyes off of it. And above all else, it's really funny as well and moving and all that stuff. So... Um, it worked. For me, it really works because those dramas in the past that have been based in Ibiza or, you know, tap into that nightclub culture, it's a very difficult thing to get right, but I guess because everyone has their own sort of memories of those times, don't they? So yeah, watching someone else have a good time is... Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. There's a lot of drug <laughs> acting. There's a lot of drunk acting. So um, you have to play that just right. Playing drunk is very difficult, isn't it? You don't want to overdo it because it's like, yes, it just becomes self-indulgent. But I think it really works. I think it's a really kind of knockout new show that um, I'm just really excited about people for watching it because everyone either wants to go to Ibiza or I've been to Ibiza. It's got that sort of mythical quality to it hasn't it so and I think they've they've really tapped into that and it's an exciting new show I'm really buzzing about it well we've got you here to discuss your inspirations so um do you want to tell us who you've plucked for well rather predictably (laughs) no I've gone for Robert De Niro I mean I was when the question came in who is your inspiration there was a few I could probably pick but none more so than um De Niro without question I mean I I love loads of actors you know all around the world, British, American, but um, without question, he was the sort of one when I was growing up that uh, um, I just tapped into more than any and, and was a huge inspiration to me, the reason really why I wanted to eventually become an actor, really. Because, I mean, I was, at, I was at stage school. I always knew that I was, I was at Italia Conti, so I was uh, jumping around in tap classes and things like that and... Um, but I, so then I moved into the students there, and it was like, so what age are you, when you take your GCSEs, you're about 15, 15 aren't you? 16, yeah. About that age. And um, I knew I was getting more and more into sort of 
American independent cinema and and I I just knew then I just wanted to just 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 to act and um, I, I I distinctly remembered a period of time when I discovered him because I was I was actually doing GCSE art on my mum's kitchen table and on Channel Four they had a sort of retrospective of his films I remember it there was they had this sort of bust of his head when it went to to the commercial break. So I would be painting on the kitchen table and I would always have the television on in the corner. It's probably not the best way to watch a film, mm-hmm. but every week, because I was there every weekend, a new film would sort of just turn up and it was, you know, Taxi Driver and Raging Ball. And the thing that really hit me for six, eventually I'd probably have just stopped painting and just to watch the film. <laughs> because I was so drawn to it. The thing that hit me for six was I couldn't quite get my head around the fact that it was all of these performances were coming from the one, from the same man. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean we're talking about being completely and utterly uh, transformative in his performances, physically, emotionally, psychologically. And I, I, you know, I just, the level of detail and commitment that goes into his performances um, I mean, you know, it's an inspiration to me, inspiration to loads of sort of upcoming actors. Um, you know, when you look at something like Raging Bull and then you sort of really get into it and you, you sort of start reading up and doing the research of how he sort of performed that character, you know, that thing of literally becoming a prize fighter, you know, training with Jake LaMotta himself, then doing all the boxing scenes... I think even Jake LaMotta himself said that he was such a good boxer. You know, he could have become like a middleweight champion. He was that good. He was that committed. But then when you read that they then, Scorsese stopped the filming and then he went off eating around Italy for months and months to gain all of that weight. And then you see that scene where he's questioned by the two police because he's got the... Supposedly slept with an underage girl and they're going to arrest him. I mean, and you just see how grossed out his body is you just think that that level of commitment to his art was really inspiring to me so I mean I and I just sort of ran with that I've tried to apply that level of commitment to everything that I do as well what was it about his performances do you think it gripped him because he that's kind of a period where obviously the the best of De Niro tends to be intense De Niro doesn't it rather than their sort of later period roles it does I mean I mean I guess when you're... What was he then, like, sort of late 20s, early 30s, that time? Yeah, I mean, I guess for any man, when you're that age, you kind of haven't got that sort of sense of responsibility as as such. I mean, you know, when I started out, when you first go into the industry, you're completely green to it. And you've got ridiculous amounts of enthusiasm and energy, you know, and that sort of drive to make your mark. I think it's a great combination, obviously, that he... Started up that relationship with Scorsese himself, you know, who's obviously at the top of his game, and the films that they created together in that era are just, you know, second to none. Um, yeah, but without question, as a, as a 15, 16 year old, intense De Niro was the thing I, without doubt, latched onto. Um, yeah, I mean, those, those sort of, you know, the taxi drivers and the Cape Fears and all those things are, are really stand out. Yeah. I guess. Um you pop off to drama school a couple of years after that. Yeah. Um, and I wrote down, 
what De Niro was doing at the point where he would have gone. So that within a oh, couple right. of years, it's Heat, Casino, Sleepers, Marvin's Room, and then Jackie Brown all in a row. Wow. Yeah. Which is like to see someone who they're having a retrospective and then see what he's doing now. That yeah. must be quite like... I can remember bunking off school going to see Heat with yeah. a friend of mine. I used to do that quite frequently. Yeah. I was missing boys ballet and I was going down the Trocadero to watch, you know, Pulp Fiction and Heat yeah. and all these sort of things. Um, but yeah, that period of time, he's sort of middle, in his middle age there, isn't yeah. he? But it seemed like the, the quality of his performance, I mean, that's the thing, the longevity of his career is, is something to really marvel at. But you know, consistently the quality in his work is always there. I mean, no doubt at some stage today you'll ask me what your favourite performance of his is. You mentioned Heat. I mean, that to me is a film that will constantly stand the test of time because it's such a... It's an amazing Cops and Robbers film. It's brilliantly shot. The music is phenomenal. But... Again, it's the two, obviously, Pacino's in it, but it's his performance more than any other actor in that that really sort of grounds that film. I mean, the level of detail and nuance that he has in that performance um, is second to none, really. I mean, to make a career as long as he's had, a lot of that, you must imagine, must come down to picking the right projects. Like, as an actor, choosing what not to do rather than what to do must be his big Well, he, he had a quote... <clears throat> A famous quote from him is, the talent is in the choices. Have you ever read that, one of his quotes before? Which is brilliant, isn't it? And for a younger actor, you know, starting out, I think you have to, and what he's done, I think, is really be selective. And, and, and I've applied that to what I've tried to build, is that you, you kind of want to push yourself in a different direction. You don't want to continually play the same role over and over and when you think of some of his sort of very different performances, I'm thinking of like Awakenings or... I mean, The King of Comedy is a film that, for me, is like a hidden gem. Yeah. And, and of all of his performances, that's one that seems to be not, not forgotten or it just seems to be brushed over a little bit because when he got into doing uh, Meet the Parents and analyzed this and everyone was like oh who knew that Robert De Niro was such a great comedic actor when you go back to the king of comedy it's just such a hilarious electric performance because he's um you know just thinking that just different moments in it but it's completely different to anything he'd kind of done before so he's a complete actor he can do it all and uh, when you think of films like Falling in Love with Meryl Streep, he's playing a romantic lead. So he's constantly uh, not pigeonholing himself. And I, you, you, without a doubt, you just know that that's his choice in doing that. And yeah, you try to apply that to what you do yourself. It's an interesting turn, isn't it, the kind of comic period? Because it sort of starts late 90s, and then there's the, there's the Analyze This, and then the sequel, mm. and then there's obviously all the Meet the Parents moments, which are hugely successful. Mm. And it's an interesting pivot, isn't it? Because Presumably for him, there was a very solid line and dramatic work that needed to have been interrupted. <clears throat> but, you know. Yeah, maybe that's why myself and Stephen Graham <laughs> wanted to do Code 404, yeah. because um, it, you just have to sort of bring levity to it sometimes, I think, don't you? And, it, and he probably got to a point in his life where he just wanted to sort of you know, go 180 degrees and try something mm. completely different. I think, you know... His sort of method acting and the stories you hear about that, 
it's I guess that level of intensity of of methodical research and all that stuff that goes into it, it it sort of is exhausting i mean when you think of taxi driver and he sort of you know he hired out a taxi himself didn't he and drove it around the streets of new york to sort of get into character um that level of commitment is is really sort of inspiring but to do that to to maintain that level of commitment i guess is is, is quite difficult isn't it because the older you get, you have kids, you, you, have, you have different responsibilities. Um, it's difficult to sort of maintain that. It's probably come back to that, hasn't he, with the Irishman and things. But um, it takes a lot out of you, doesn't it? Someone always said to me, you've probably only got five great... You can count on one hand, Danny, the really great performances that you can deliver. Well, he's probably done <laughs> double that, hasn't he, really? I mean, how method do you get? When you get ready for a role, I have gone. I have done things. So um, you played a few, few real people, or things like that. Yeah, I have. Uh, I've lost. I've played a heroin addict. I lost a ridiculous amount of weight for that. I've gained weight. I've done all those sort of things. I don't think I'd ever gain weight for a role again. It was horrendous. Um, what was that? Just difficult to shift it or like? No, know? that that was. It was for a film called Byzantium that Neil Jordan directed. Oh, the vampire. Yeah, Nasty, the vampire thing. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I played Noel, the sort of guy that owned the the hotel called Byzantium. And um, he said, no, Danny, I really want you to do it, but I want you to... Because he lives on takeaways, I, I, I just really want you to put on weight. And I was, I think I was on holiday in Cornwall <laughs> when I found out. So I immediately ordered double cream teas <laughs> and didn't look back. And I really, I mean, it was quite surprising how much the weight just piled on. <laughs> and then I was going into audition for Mrs Biggs <laughs> and I was like... And I got Mrs. Biggs, and I was like, I've got shit, I've got to lose this weight. And I was obviously a little bit older, and I was just, it was, I was struggling to lose it. So I had to really invest in a personal <laughs> trainer and really go to work. So, um, I be, but that thing of morphing your body and stuff is, 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 it kind of blows my mind. You think of people like Christian Bale, and Tom Hardy does it as well, doesn't he? It's really, I mean, that's, that level of commitment happens, you know. A, months and months before you start principal photography you know in the security of your own home you know you're you're building up to delivering a transformative performance so it's all about the preparation i think i think the whole mythology of method acting can go a bit crazy i think daniel lewis yeah the whole <laughs> daniel day lewis thing of him i mean i've worked not with many but with some actors that really are in it and uh, um, you know before you know you, when they arrive on the set you can tell they're in a different place or they're sort of already in character it's not happened much to me but it's quite um, disarming at times so I wouldn't necess necessarily say I'm a method actor myself but I don't ever get involved in whatever other preparation an actor has to do to get into it that's their own thing so you just have to go along with that really but you know if Daniel Day-Lewis wants to live in a in a in the forest to play the last of the Mohicans role that's great man I mean I think any actor has to do whatever he has to do that he feels he has to do to get into it and to serve the writing and to get into the character so um yeah no I mean I guess you know you, you I think you instinctively know if a project is and the writing is of such a standard you can recognise that this is a part that I could really 
you know, land in. This could really be something. This could, um, like you've mentioned, I've played real life characters. I've played Ronnie Biggs. I mean, one recently was I played Colin Parry mm. in a single drama called Mother's Day. Mm. Um, so Colin's son was tragically killed by the IRA um, in the sort of mid 90s, early 90s. So when you get a project like that, um, the level of commitment and responsibility more than anything is, is paramount. You just feel that from the off. So you worry about emotionally, am I going to be able to get to that place? Am I going to be able to serve the character? Am I going to be able to tell the story? And so, yeah, I mean, months and months before that project started, it was all about refining the voice, looking at all of the material, uh, everything on YouTube, reading all the books. Just, you have to just literally immerse yourself in the world of the story that you're portraying, and then something will come out. And, you know, I, that's what I got from Robert De Niro. It was just, it just kind of leapt off the screen at me. Even at the early films, because I guess with things like The Deer Hunter and things, you can see how all in it is, really. Oh, I mean, it's so... Uh, God, yeah. We could just talk to the cows come home with the amazing films that he's been in. But, um, yeah, that rage. I mean, I always think of that, the Russian roulette scene of that. It feels like it completely goes off script, that scene, doesn't it? Playing violent characters is a real art. I mean, I don't know how much of that you've had to do. A, a fair bit of it. I've played a fair few yeah. nutters, yeah. What's that like, kind of getting in mode for that? Because, you know, being unhinged but being frightening is quite a difficult skill. I mean, De Niro's got it down to a fine art, especially in you know, things like Taxi Driver and Deer Hunter and things. Yeah, it's about... I'm trying to think of the real... Um, the, <laughs> an early film I did... The first film I did with Mike Lee... First film, I've only done two of them. Yeah. The first film I did with him was called All or Nothing. I don't know if you've ever seen that. It's about um, a South London taxi driver uh, that Timothy Spall played. And it's all set on a, a council estate in South London. And I play this horrible, violent, abusive boyfriend uh, to Helen Coker's character. And he... He was a nightmare. He was... I mean... He was so... Um, I mean, that again, that was the first film I did out of drama school. So I was... Mike would get you into character in a room somewhere on this council estate and I would just smash the room up and... I mean, I would really get into it. Because with Mike Lee, you're never allowed to come out of the character mm. until someone tells you. So... Um, but again, I mean, that, that was a method all in itself. I remember him, because the character had a, a, a knife wound. He had a scar all the way down his face, a horrible cut all the way down. And as an exercise, one day we had Chrissy Blundell, the amazing makeup artist, she came in and she applied the scar. I mean, it was just, it looked like a proper knife wound. And Mike would say, right, I want you to get into character and I want you to just go out on your own and just exist and, 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 and sort of come back in like, I don't know, three, four hours or whatever it was. So I went out on the I went out on the tube and I'm, you know, I've got the costume on, I've got the polo shirt and the shaved head and everything, and the scar and the rings. Um, it was just an amazing exercise. I, I actually remember having a game of pool in a pub as well. You know, when you go in and there was like a group of guys and I put a pound down and I ended up fucking improvising with these fucking rather rough looking kids. And I'm thinking I'm going to get found out in a minute. They're going to knock the shit out of me. But. Um, I just remember being on the tube, sitting opposite people, um, and them looking at me and just seeing the scar and just going, no, I'll just avoid my gaze or like move over to the other side of the, of the carriage. 
But it was a brilliant acting exercise because it, it, you know, it just gave me that sort of ammunition to go in then and play the role. But when I was on set, I was really in it. And I remember the, the makeup artist couldn't come in and do the, the, the makeup checks and things like that. No one would come near me. <laughs> but I've, I guess I've sort of calmed down a lot now, he says here, with a broken <laughs> uh, a cast on his arm. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, you, you, I guess you mellow out, you know, um, the older you get on yeah. set. But yeah, I have played my fair few nutbags, there's, there's no question. Do you have to G yourself up for this? I think you do have to G yourself up. It depends. It really depends on what the uh, the scene is you're doing. You know, if you're... I remember in that film, you know, there's a brilliant scene where she turns around and she says she's pregnant and he completely fucking flips. Mm. And and you definitely have to get into character for that. I mean, in a way, it's a sort of mini version of method acting, you know. Or indeed, if you're doing something emotional, you have to... For me personally, I mean, you get some actors that are literally able to turn it on like a tap. But, I mean, my, I guess my method of, it, of approach is always, if I'm doing something like that, is to listen to music, is to go away in the corner or go find a quiet place somewhere and just sort of get into it that way. And that's when all the sort of preparation that you've applied to it, all the research, all of that is rolling around somewhere in your head. You know, you just have to just immerse yourself in it to the point where you're able to go on set and then be as free as possible. You know, know the lines forwards, backwards, sideways. Don't ever have to think about any of the text. Just exist and be. And that's when you can really apply the emotion and the rage or the, the whatever it is, grief or whatever you're trying to deal with. Um, that's the technique I use anyway. So are you watching other people's work while you're making films, or do you just really have to sort of turn yourself off from that sort of thing? Um, I don't tend... Am I sort of watching other TV shows to chill out and switch well, yeah, off? I mean, or are you thinking, well, I've got a scene like this, let's go back to Raging Bull, or let's go back to whatever... Oh, no, I don't do that. No, no, no. I'm, um, I don't ever... I feel like when I'm doing something, I'm completely immersed in whatever that story is. Yeah. yeah. I have had a director once say to me... Um, I don't know why she just popped into my head. You can't ever try and, you know, imitate someone else's performance. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? But I remember one director that was struggling, or we were struggling with the scene, and he kept making me do a line reading. He said, no, no, try it again, try it again. I think it got to the third time, and I was like, what is it, what are we actually trying to get here? What's, what's the issue? And he said, have you seen Nicolas Cage in The Rock? And I went, what? And he went, yeah, Nicholas Cage. Well, I said, what, the film with Sean Connery? And he went, yeah, yeah, do it like that. Do it like that character. Mm -hmm. And I was just like, it was the worst note I've ever been given. Because <laughs> it was like, I'm never... I mean, OK, let's all sit... Let's stop filming. <laughs> let's, get the, let's get the rock on now and sit and watch Nicholas Cage. You know, so you have to... It, it's all about investing your own imagination to it, always. You know, and that only comes by being as free and as playful as you can possibly be on set. I mean, invariably sets are, I'm not talking about Robert De Niro now, I'm just going off on one, aren't I? But sets, you know, you're hanging around a lot of the time, there's lots of waiting about. Um, it can get quite stagnant on set sometimes, you know, so I always tend to be quite jokey on set, bring a bit of levity to it, just to keep everybody's energy up. Cause it's, it's really a sort of team effort. You've got cast and crew, you know, You've got to always, hopefully, maintain that level of energy throughout the crew as well. 
because you're like a sort of travelling band of you're like a circus. You just pitch up and move on, and you know. So it's um it's a really wonderful collaborative um, experience making a film or a TV show, or indeed on a play. But it's um it's you know when it's right and when the director instills that environment, it's a really creative and wonderful place to be. To take it back uh, to the main man, what have you made a kind of latter day De Niro? I mean, have you seen The Irishman? I have, I have seen The Irishman, and obviously I've just worked with Stephen Graham recently, <laughs> so Stephen kept sending me these pictures from set, of, like, he kept taking the pictures of the monitor of him and Al Pacino and De Niro and all these people, and I was, it was just sort of, it just sort of blew my mind, but um, yeah, I love The Irishman, I, I just, you know, I just thought it was a... Um, for him to be working a game with Scorsese and you throw Pacino in the mix, and um, I just thought it was a, an amazing sort of return to form, you know, um, to get all those people in the room together. And I was so blown away by Stephen in it. I mean, I, I mean, I love Stephen Graham as an actor. I mean, you know, he's, for me, he's one of the best actors this country's ever produced. Don't tell him I <laughs> don't tell him I said that. But um, I thought he was just knockout in The Irishman to the point where I wanted to actually see more of his character I mean those exchanges with him and Pacino were, um, were part of the, I think the best part of the film really so it was great to see Stephen in amongst all those giants and again I just thought De Niro led it brilliantly you know and it was just epic wasn't it it was an epic American like, gangster story again it's a different side of him though because I mean, when you're an actor, you spend your life playing ages, but to play various versions of himself with all that strange CGI... It's, uh... Yeah, I, I, I totally got on board with the CGI. It was, um, it was, everyone was always talking about it, weren't they? But um, I think I, literally like 10 minutes into it, you just forget that... Um, I thought it was brilliantly done. I mean, it didn't, it didn't jar with me at all, and you were just invested in the story, and I think that in itself is you know, the biggest compliment I can give it. I mean, it must be strange playing yourself as a younger man because, like, you know, there are subtle changes that people wouldn't notice. I mean, like, your walk changes as you get older because, obviously, yeah. you know, injuries or whatever. And so having to factor all that into a performance again, but want to keep stretching himself. Yeah, I mean, the makeup at the beginning when he was in the care home was brilliant, wasn't yeah. it? And, um, but I thought he achieved that brilliantly, you know. The phys- I mean, he's always been a brilliantly physical performer, isn't he? I think of so. I actually, the last De Niro film I watched again was. It was on Sky, it was Cape Fear. And, um, oh, that's a terrifying. That is, I mean, probably his most terrifying uh, performance, isn't it? Um, with him caked in um, tattoos and all that sort of stuff. I even remember, this is how much of a fan I was. I can remember going to an audition. To, it was to get a grant. It was to get, I think it was to get a grant to go to st- stage school something like that, with my local council. And I actually learned... There's that scene in Cape Fear where he gets beaten up by the guys and Nick Nolte's hiding behind. Do you remember that yeah. scene? And he starts coming out and he kicks the can and he goes into that really weird sort of biblical speech. I actually learned that speech <laughs> and performed that speech to a panel of um, people on Essex County Council. <laughs> which was, and I had the hair, I had the voice and everything. And was, I think they were just like completely bamboozled <laughs> by me that I'd pick something like that. Day full of Hamlet monologues, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to do this. And it was... Um, I ended up getting the, 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 the grant. I'm though. not surprised. So I, 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 must, I must have done something, right? Yeah. 
So we ask everyone kind of um, what's the ultimate? And you talked about heat earlier. So do you think for you that's where it is or would you go back to taxi driver or oh, man, any men things? It's just, it's literally like, um, it's sort of an impossible question really, isn't it? I mean, it, what, if I had to pick one, it, it would either be, it would either be, um, it would, we haven't even mentioned Goodfellas, have we? Uh, it, but, for me, heat does really stick out. It'll either be Raging Bull or Heat, but for a, a complete film, in terms of narrative story, it would probably be Heat. I mean, I, I, it's one of those films that when it comes on, you're just you're locked in and you, you, you can't take your eyes off of it again. I mean, Raging Bull is, for any actor, that's the kind of ultimate of commitment, isn't it? Which I guess when you start now is what you always think acting's going to be. Yeah, yeah it's... it's I mean, you just think of the, 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 the amazing scenes in it. And, um, but I would, I would... Someone asked me what my top three films were. It was... I, I'm going to contradict myself. I said, hey, it would probably have to be Raging Bull. Because someone did say, Danny, what's your top three films? I said, Raging Bull, Apocalypse Now and Nil by Mouth. So um, one of those is only with De Niro. So Raging Bull, yeah. Purely from an acting point of view purely with how committed it was, how entrenched he was in that role. Um, it's just on another level, isn't it? Yeah. Well, Daniel Mace, thank you very much for letting us hear your inspiration and good luck with your busy year. Cheers, Tom. Thanks Many thanks, much. mate. Cheers. If you enjoyed today's episode, then why not join us next time where we'll be talking to eccentric singer Rufus Wainwright. He'll be chatting about his new album Unfollow the Rules and his inspiration, Nina Simone. To get that and all the other episodes of my inspiration, make sure you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from. Full information on today's episode, as well as all the others, can be found on our website. Just visit hmv.com slash podcast for full details. 